Ted Robinson is a Sacramento Recreation and Park Commissioner. When he worked for Pacific Telephone, he ran their Speakers Bureau, and since the 1950s, he's personally given thousands of talks. Ted still does so many times each month, despite being 90 years young. In World War II, Commander Robinson was an eyewitness to and participant in an episode in the Solomon Islands, which became famous. He's talked about it publicly and devotes chapters to it in his new book, Water in My Veins. Its subtitle, The Pauper Who Helped Save the President, reveals the incident in question, the sinking of PT-109 and the remarkable rescue of Commander John F. Kennedy, a future president. Ted Robinson, welcome to Radio Parallax. Glad to be here. In 1943, you were an executive officer on a PT boat trying to check the Japanese Navy in the Pacific. By way of background, tell us a bit about what those small, fast boats were doing and what their strategy was. Uh, Our job in the real early days of Guadalcanal, you got to realize the Japanese controlled everything. They had 22 airfields within 100 miles. We had one airstrip at uh, Guadalcanal that we had just captured. They totally controlled the sea because most of our fleet had been sunk at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Whatever we had left, they were soon sunk with uh, long lance torpedoes the Japanese had. Our job was uh, mainly to stop the Japanese supply line. If you are able to stop the supply line of a military group so they can't get ammunition, they can't get reinforcements, medicine, everything it takes to fight a war, you win that war. Our job was to stop it at night. We couldn't stop in the daytime because uh, they totally controlled the area in the daytime, but we stopped it or tried to stop it at night. You saw battle as the U.S. Navy was pushing past Guadalcanal, working its way up the Solomon Island chain. On August 1st of that year, you took part in an action in the sea lane called the Blackett Strait. Can you describe uh, the events of that evening? Well, we heard from the Coast Watchers, and the Coast Watchers were uh, British, Australian, or New Zealand uh, chaps who uh, had gone back behind enemy lines and would radio what the Japanese were doing. And we heard they were sending down five heavy destroyers loaded with almost a thousand troops to reinforce their troops at Munda. Our Marines were attempting to capture Munda airstrip so we would have two and they would only have 20 airstrips. And our job was to stop those destroyers if we could. Well, I know that as part of the action, you witnessed an explosion that turned out that one of the PT boats had been struck and lost, and that was, uh, that was commanded by uh, Jack Kennedy. We actually sent out uh, 12 PT boats to try and stop those five destroyers. So happened, incidentally, one of those destroyers never made it. They broke down. So uh, actually four of them arrived. We had 12 PT boats out there to stop them. I was on the lead PT boat. I wasn't on my own boat that night. I was on the 159 boat because I was operating as a radar officer for the entire attack, and I was requested by the commanding officer, Hank Branningham, to be his radar officer. So I was on the lead boat in the entire attack. And you mentioned also in the book, I was surprised that the person who's the best witness to what happened to PT-109 was actually uh, a neighbor of yours here right here in Sacramento. Yes, uh, his name was John O'Neill, and he was a radio man on uh, PT-162, which was very close to 109 when she was rammed. And he used to go with me on my speeches and kind of back up what I said because they were so close. Some of the flaming gasoline from that explosion came over on their boat. And he was the one that reported that nobody could have survived that explosion because we carried 
3,000 gallons of high-octane gasoline because we had three 1,500-horsepower engines, almost 6,000 horsepower. So we needed a lot of gas. We'd use 600 gallons an hour at top speed. So I, I guess that hap- as happens in wartime, uh, you men had a, at a funeral for Commander Kennedy and his crew. We saw this huge explosion. We didn't know, of course, at the time whether it might be that Jack or one of the boats lowest, lower down at Blackett Street had got a hit on a destroyer and the explosion was actually a, a destroyer going up. Uh, next day we found out what happened and we... Uh, asked the Air Force to go up and search, and they did, but uh, they saw the hull of the boat of 109 floating in Blackett Strait, but they didn't see any survivors. There actually were survivors that first day, but that airplane was flying however high they flew in those days because they had 20 airfields of Japanese planes looking for them. So five days later, as it would turn out, uh, you're on duty, and a couple of Solomon Islanders paddle up, and they hand you a coconut shell with a message on it. That message ended up on Jack Kennedy's desk the whole time he was uh, president. It said something like, 11 still alive, send help. And we talked to the Melanesian natives that had paddled for 30 miles to bring that message from where Jack was on a little remote island up there in Blackett Strait. And that's the first uh, we heard he was alive. In fact, they handed the coconut to me, and then I brought it to the commanding officer and then uh, we uh, actually radioed the coast watcher, Evans his name was, an Australian, who was in Kolomagara, and we set up a rescue mission. The coast uh, watcher sent some uh, food over to where Jack's crew was and a uh, British Enfield rifle, and we arranged how to go in and get him. And you took part in the rescue? Yes, I did, and uh, it's a lucky thing you did. It sure changed my life. <laughs> And I also have to be first to admit that any military man that may be listening to this program knows that if the commanding officer asked a little Denson, which I was, if he'd like to do something, it's the greatest idea in the whole world. <laughs> and so I went, but I also went for two other reasons. One, I liked Jack. He was a friend of mine. Uh, two, to be honest, I thought it might be a little easier mission than what, what we were doing every night. We were under fire almost every night. It was a dangerous mission, but everything we did was dangerous. And I, I do love the fact that you mentioned, Ted, when you went out to get Kennedy, the first thing he did is, is give you guys a wisecrack. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. People asked me uh, when I was his tent mate, and I knew him so well, what he was really like. He had a very shrewd, uh, funny sense of humor, uh, although he was in terrible shape when we picked him up. He had gone a whole week without food, very little water in the heat with the... Uh, his feet cut to shreds from uh, trying to get across the reefs that we had out there to get re- help. But he still said, uh, uh, where in the hell you guys been? I've been at this bus stop for a whole week now. <laughs> it, was, it was seven days by the time we got there, yeah. Well, a lot's been said about uh, what happened after the boat uh, was sunk, et cetera, and historians have taken a look back at it. Um, you were there. You got first-hand reports from all the men. You talked to Kennedy himself. What happened? You said I was the first to talk to his executive officer, Lenny Tom, and his crew about what actually happened in that intervening week. And what really happened is, first of all, people say, well, how in the, could a high-speed destroyer uh, not get out of the way of the Japanese destroyer? Well, for one thing, the Japanese destroyers by that time were going faster than we could. 
those Japanese destroyers went about 38 knots. We could do that back in the Hudson River when we were in good shape, but when we were out there for a long time and the bottoms were foul and so on, we, we were lucky they could, if we could match them. Destroyers were tremendously light and fast, the Japanese destroyers. Our PT boats were pretty beat up by that time. We had trouble getting engine parts and so on. The real problem that was lost is that we were uh, 30 miles behind enemy lines, totally surrounded by 100,000 Japanese troops. On Every island out there was loaded with troops, all looking for us. And with those high-powered engines, 1,500 horsepower, you can hear them 25 miles away. And the Japanese had shore batteries, mortars, and their planes were over us all night, dropping flares, desperately trying to find us. In fact, if they didn't find us and destroy us before we made our attack, they had to go back and commit suicide. And that's very, very motivational. The Japanese had great motivational methods. <laughs> and, and so Jack had his mufflers closed. We would close our overwater mufflers so as not to make any sound. But you couldn't go over six knots. You had to just drift, practically, when your mufflers were closed. If you speed it up, the, the boat would, to use an uncivilized word, crap out if you speed it up suddenly. So we had to keep our mufflers closed. Even when we went on our, our attacks, we had our mufflers closed because we were so noisy, the airplanes were over us all night long, dropping flares, then dropping bombs, desperate to find us, could hear us. And so he was going back very slowly in dead darkness, couldn't see a thing, desperately trying to get close enough to those destroyers to make his attack. And about that time, the destroyers had come so fast, they got through all of us, they unloaded their troops. So they came back from an unexpected direction from the south, uh, but Jack's starboard lookout and the starboard gun tap was looking in the south and screamed a warning. Well, Jack looked up. Now, first of all, before we can start firing at anything, we got to determine it isn't a, another PT boat coming out. You're talking total darkness here. Right. You're talking about people who are blinded by these flares, and then the flares go out, and then it's dark, and then the searchlights come on, and then they go out, and then there's gunfire, and you can't see. You keep losing your night vision. Yes, the darkness, any, anybody's got to figure out what it's like in the water at night. Man, it's black out there. So they were going at very slow speed, looking desperately, and then they had to decide whether this bow wake coming towards them was another PT boat. They didn't want to fire at another PT, but it could have been a, an American ship that for somehow was in it. So you got to check. We had sunk, incidentally, we had sunk an American transport out there just a month before, but that was told that was going to Japanese. And so we went in and sunk it, and it turned out to be my next-door neighbor here in Sacramento, <laughs> believe it or not, who was executive officer of that ship. And he, he's, you know, that's not a way to make a good neighbor friend. <laughs> But at any rate, Jack had to check all those things, and by the time he did that and realized it was a Japanese destroyer coming at him, he did what you would have done, what everybody who criticized him would have done. He shoved those throttles forward to desperately get out of the way because it took eight to ten minutes to open those mufflers. Jack didn't have ten minutes. He shoved those throttles forward. His boat started. It balked. 
and it stalled. Then and only then he pushed the mufflers. It was too late. They sliced them right in half. That's what happened. Cut the boat right in half. Ted, I think maybe the most amazing part in, in an amazing book is your description of what Kennedy did that didn't try and save the crew. I, it's, it's a, it is a remarkable tale. Can you kind of outline what he did between the time he was sunk and rescued? Well, what happened? That destroyer cut the uh, PT boat directly in half. PTs were only made of seven-ply plywood. No armor plate, nothing. Now imagine we were going in against the enemy in that kind of boat, uh, made out of plywood. Uh, it was suicide work. First question people should ask is, why would Jack Kennedy even volunteer for such duty? That took guts right there. But at any rate, the boat was cut right in half. The stern of the boat sunk and in it with the engineer that was down in the engine room and so on. Uh, what happened is if you're hit on the starboard side by a destroyer going almost 50 miles an hour, you go to port real quick. <laughs> through the air, you go through the port. Everybody was thrown into the water. The aft part of the boat where the torpedoes were, the engines were, the weight was sunk. The bow, thank God, was just plywood. So it floated. And Jack actually stayed on the boat because he was uh, at the helm, and he hung on to this little rail. And then, as his radioman said, Jack Kennedy, he said, like a damn fool, he said, dove into the water in the flaming gasoline. Jack told me later that that destroyer was going so fast the bow weight carried the flaming gasoline away from the hull, but the crew had been thrown into the flaming gasoline. Jack swam out dragged his men one at a time back to the bow, badly burned. He was burned. The crew was terribly burned, some of them. And they hung on to the bow that was floating all the next day. And they soon realized that uh, he had to get away from there because they were drifting towards Kolomagara that had 40,000 Japanese troops. So the next night, he took the most severely wounded man um, uh, by his... Uh, life jacket in his teeth and towed this man two miles in the dark to a little island called Plum Island where he knew there were no, one of the few islands where there were no Japanese. And he hauled that man back. And then his job in the next week was to desperately try to save his crew. His idea was, well, there's a, there's a strait where the boats are coming through at night to act to try and engage the Japanese. He swims out into the strait to try and flag down a boat, an American boat that could come to a rescue. I thought that was just amazing. And we didn't see him because a narrow strait like Ferguson Passage that we had to go through to get into Blackett Strait, uh, but it was between the open sea and the huge Blackett Strait, and anything like that, especially between the reefs, is a strong current, there's waves, and, but he, it was his only chance. So he, night after night, he swam out there and tried to flag us down. We did go through there in subsequent, but we were looking up. We were looking at the Japanese planes that were dropping flares and bombs on us. To, we weren't looking down in the water, and there was heavy surf and heavy frame. And he crawled across those reefs night after night alone. He never asked his crew to do it. He never asked any time. Very dangerous. He got cut to shreds. His feet were cut to shreds. There were sharks, of course, in the darkness. Very heroic, and uh, he never asked the crew to do it. He had them stay in the safety of the land with this executive officer, Lenny, Lenny Top. Your boat, PT-118, went down after striking a reef uh, about a month later. You two young men uh, wound up sharing a tent for a while. You got to, to know him pretty well. He said something almost prophetic to you, that someday, somebody in the future, decades from now, is going to question what happened. And, and, and as you point out, the History Channel uh, came to interview you uh, a few years ago, and boy, that was exactly the case. 
the press and you're part of the press is always looking for controversy. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, they uh, interviewed me and they tried to twist my words uh, to make it sound like he was a real bum. And of course I wouldn't do that. And, uh, that's why I wrote the book. I actually wrote this book seriously to clear Jack Kennedy's name. That's why I wrote it. Because all these seven Mommy Dearest books, right, as the History Channel put on, were never out there. All of us are out there, not just me, feel the way, just the way I did, that he did wonders trying to rescue his crew. And as far as him being rammed, that could have happened to any one of us. We ran, we ran boats on reefs. We ran them in each other. In the night, it's confusing. The big ship Navy ran into each other. The Japanese ran into each other. And incidentally, clear my own name uh, on the, that I ended up on the reef. We were in hot pursuit of the Japanese <laughs> so close that we all ended on the same reef together, and we could hear them talking. That's how close we were. Only they had 21 men, thousand men on the shore. We were in very bad shape. But that, how we got out of that's in the book. Read the book. I, I was struck, as you, you described how you're in hot pursuit of the Japanese, You, both of you, you and another ship, all of you are on the same reef, and everyone decides to quit shooting at one another because you've got bigger issues to how to rescue yourself. I found that was remarkable. Well, all they had to do was radio uh, walk ashore and get to any one of those 21,000 troops to haul up a little artillery, and we, and we were finished. We radioed for the big ship Navy to come up and try to pull us off. We could have rescued my boat, and they said... We're not going up there. We were 70 miles behind enemy lines. Well, Ted, you were a lifelong Republican, but you regarded Jack Kennedy as, as a friend from the war and, and a hero whose heroism you wanted to tell the public about. But here in your house, three feet away, is a photo of your daughter with Richard Nixon. Which man did you vote for back in 1960? A question I've never answered. <laughs> and won't do now? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Ted Robinson. Thanks so much. Thank you.